Well, I echo the welcome you've had twice already. I'm especially glad that you're here today. So I'm not the only one out when it's 28 degrees in Texas, and you guys have joined me being out. But more so than that, I'm glad you're here this day because this series starts today, and today is the foundation. Today really is going to lay the, the groundwork of this entire series that we'll be in for many, many weeks now. In fact, I don't know how long, uh, but for many weeks now. We'll be, we'll be in the book of Acts, but I want to start with something that happened in the book of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. And uh, I think I'll just tell you about it. What precedes those verses, I need, you need to know about as well. It's a day that, that Jesus has been exhausted emotionally and physically and probably even, um, if you will, spiritually. And it's been a tough day. So he's headed off to have some quiet time with God the Father. And a crowd knows where he's going. And they have seen him work miracles and heal people. So they begin to follow him. They've come for his teaching as well. And so this massive crowd gathers up. And uh, Matthew says there were 5,000 men, plus women and children. So maybe 15,000, 20,000 people there. He teaches all afternoon. By the end of the afternoon, the sun is setting. It's, uh, it's late. He's exhausted. They're exhausted. They're all hungry. And many of you would know the story that unfolds. There's this one boy that has a sack lunch. And Jesus takes the sack lunch. And he multiplies this single sack lunch and distributes it through the, through the, through the disciples and he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. So he feeds 15 to 20,000. This stunning event. And then he closes everything down. He sends the people back to where they came from. He puts the apostles in this large rowboat and says, go across the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to go to the mountains to have time with my father. And so they get in the rowboat. Some of them have been fishermen their entire life. They've lived hours uh, on the Sea of Galilee, many, many days and nights, and, and they're going across. It's eight miles across. In a rowboat, it takes a long time to make it across. And as often happened then and as hap- happens even now, this big storm begins to rage. And so in the Gospel of John, it says they're three or four miles in. So they're halfway across the lake. They're a long ways from either side. The storm is raging. And so Jesus knows all this. He knows that they're in some desperate straits, and so he, he simply walks across the water to them. He's God the Son. He's made everything. He's created all natural law. He's God of all natural law. He can break it whenever he wants to, and so he, he is walking across the water. They, they see him walking across the water toward them, and my thought, if I were in their shoes, was, would probably have been, I'm, I'm imagining things. Uh, because the things like that don't happen. Their thought was, it's a ghost. They thought it, it's a being, but it's this ghost, and they're, they're frightened out of their minds. And, and so he calls out to them, and he says, don't be afraid. I am here. And the phrase he used, I am, was the phrase of God. He was saying, I, I, I God, am here. You don't need to be afraid. And Peter makes this, this very strange request they're in this storm. They've been in the boat. They've been panicked. And now they're panicked because Jesus is walking on the water. And, G- and Peter says, if it's really you, Lord, then tell me to, and, and I will step out, and I will walk on the water to you. Now, I, I can only guess at his motive because Scripture doesn't tell us. But I don't think his motive was that of a thrill seeker. I, I don't think he was sitting there. All of a sudden, the nerves calmed down, and he said, how cool will this be? You know, if it works, great. If not, well, my life is over. I don't think it was a thrill seeker. I don't think it was like a, a bunch of guys that hang out and they make it to the pool and the leader of the guys finally jumps off the high board and another guy says, looks like fun. I want to try it too. I don't, I don't think that was his motive. I think his, his motive was this. I think he was wrestling with the relationship of a disciple to 
his rabbi. And, and he and all of Israel would understand that relationship. The relationship was this. The rabbi was one that had so much knowledge and insight and wisdom that the disciple would follow the rabbi. And the entire intention of the relationship was that the disciple would become just like the rabbi. And whatever the rabbi would begin to think and how the rabbi would think would become how the disciple would one day learn to think. And the things that the rabbi would speak would become what the disciple would speak. And and the heart of the rabbi would become the heart of the disciple. And wherever the rabbi went, the disciple would go as well. And they were good with that, but their day had been so disorienting because they'd seen Jesus take a sack lunch and feed fifteen to 20,000 people. And I think Peter had been wrestling all evening with that. I'm a disciple, you're a rabbi. Does the same relationship hold with us? I've known other disciples, I've known other rabbis, don't know any rabbis that can feed 15,000 from a sack lunch. How does this work, Jesus? Is, is it something different, or am I really supposed to become like you? And now he sees Jesus walking on water, and what better way to find it to get an answer? Tell me, Jesus, is this the traditional relationship and goal, or is, this, is it different? If it's really you, Jesus, tell me to walk across the water to you, and I will. So Jesus says, yes, Come. And so Peter steps over the edge and he steps into the deep where feet may fail. Indeed, uh, feet will fail unless Jesus supernaturally intervenes. So Peter steps into the deep and Jesus does supernaturally intervene. He suspends the laws of nature for Peter as well. And for several brief moments, Peter is actually walking on the water. And then it says, as he's taken maybe several steps... He looks away from Jesus, and he looks at the storm and at the waves, and he begins to rapidly sink, and Jesus has to save him then. And there's this profound story there, but from everything we can tell, he was the only person ever to walk on water. As far as we know, no one other than Peter's ever walked on water, and Peter only did it once. This wasn't the kind of thing that became the identifier of followers of Jesus, You read the book of Acts, and and the story doesn't unfold where someone trusts Jesus. Next thing they do, they go find a lake someplace, and they walk across it, blow people away. That that wasn't the identifier. This is what I think was going on. I think Jesus was was saying, I'm actually going to give you a real life circumstance. It's going to get your attention and the attention of people 2,000 years from now. And this event will be a metaphor of something much more profound for followers of mine. Much, much more profound for followers of mine. This one will, be, will mean so much more and be much more pervasive than everything that you've just seen. Now, I think this was, the, this was his idea. Was, this is going to be a metaphor for, for something about the Christian life. And so to walk into that, to begin to see what that metaphor would look like, this is where the study of Acts begins. And, and again, we'll be there for some extended period of time. But so turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Acts chapter 1. We'll be in Acts 1, 1 through 8 right now. Okay, and, and I want to give you the first three verses first because it sets the stage for the main point of this passage for us. It opens with these words. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. He's saying this is in my first book, and this is actually Luke writing this particular book of Acts. And Luke was also the author of the gospel, the gospel of Luke. And so this is his second book. And he's saying, I, I told you in the gospel of Luke all about the things Jesus did on this planet. And now he's going to tell a little bit more and then tell what happened to the followers of Jesus for the decades that followed. 
So verse 3, he says, For 40 days after Jesus' crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. So for 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to these 11 as well as some others again and again and again. And every time he appears to them, whether it's the first time or the second or the fourth or the fifth time, he's proving them again he's alive. And and that would suggest to you that that they're having a hard time believing what they're seeing with their own eyes. They're having a really hard time coming to grips with the one in front of them. They, they know it's Jesus. They see it's Jesus. They know he's breathing. They can touch him. They can embrace him. They actually see him eat fish. It actually, it goes into his mouth and it disappears. It's not like a ghost that you can actually see the fish, you know, going down his whatever the wind, not whatever pipe this is, you know. It's, it's not that at all. They, they, so time after time, when he comes and appears again and again, he realizes, I have got to leverage within them. I actually have risen from the dead. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, which is the last time he appears to them before he ascends to heaven, in verse 17, it says they believed, and yet some of them still doubted. And this is what we should get from this. How how hard it is to believe Jesus rose from the dead. As I've been pondering this, I've been thinking about every time, every time I've told someone that I've met who doesn't yet believe that to be true, the first time I tell them that, you know what runs through my mind? They are going to think I'm loony, nuts, crazy. They're going to think I drank the Kool-Aid. They're going to think I've been brainwashed. That goes through my mind because I realize what I'm saying. And of course, I'm saying it from a point of, of I began to trust Jesus and he has shown himself so many ways I can't help but believe but they don't have that background. And so when every time I'm, I'm saying that, I realize unless God steps in somehow, there's no way they'll even pay attention to these words. This is what I want you to hold on to about how hard it is to believe someone would rise from the dead. They saw him again and again. They still struggle with it. So we'll pick up then in verse 4. Once when Jesus was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, don't, don't leave, because I'm going to give you a mission to do, but the mission is of such great difficulty that you won't have a chance to fulfill it unless you have the very power of the Spirit of God within you. And don't even think about leaving and launching out on some mission. Don't even think about that, because the one I'm going to give you is so hard You'll be stepping in such deep water, you will sink and drown. You won't have a chance unless you have come to this point where I've given you the very Spirit of God living within you. That's how hard the mission will be. And then we'll pick up in verse 6, and he begins to move toward the mission. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to, to free Israel and restore your kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the mission. Say, here's your mission. I want you to go into this city that we're in, the city of Jerusalem, where where they have just executed me, where they... They, they have determined they would be forever rid of me. I want you to go to this very city, and you tell them I'm alive again. You stir this up all over again. 
Do you know what that had to do to their heartbeat? Like a death sentence. You're kidding, Jesus. They, they just killed you, and now we walk in and say you're alive again, and you're not going to show yourself? How do you think that's going to go over? And then not just Jerusalem, but Judea, the surrounding area, and a lot of the people that were there on crucifixion day were not just from Jerusalem, but from Judea. They were the ones shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He wants to go to those people? And then you want us to go to Samaria, and the deal with the Jewish people and the Samaritan people was there was such racial hatred. They could not stand each other. Jesus, you want us to go to them, and we are Jews? They will, they will hate our very existence before we even speak. You, you think we can just say you rose from the dead, and they'll believe and follow? Are you kidding me? And not just the Samaritans, but to the ends of the earth? The ends of the earth, there are people that have never heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've never heard of Moses. You walk up to someone and say, hey, my name's Peter. Let me tell you about a guy that got killed, and he came back to life again. He's God. Trust him. We'll baptize you. That's going to work? This, Jesus was saying to them, guys, this is, this is my plan for your life. I, I want you to step into the deep where feet may fail. In fact, they will fail unless I show up in power. I'm giving you a mission and a direction and a life that, that is into the deep, and it will fail unless I show up, unless I intervene. That's the mission that I've given you. And the point for us today and for many weeks to come is that the mission of stepping into the deep where feet may fail is not just a mission given to the apostles. It's not just a mission about evangelism. It's a mission given to every single Christ follower. In fact, this is what I would say that's very important that you wrestle with this, and at some point you can embrace this, is that faith at its core is stepping into the deep. Faith at its core is stepping into the deep. Faith is going where feet may fail. That's what faith is. It is going where feet may fail. It is going where, where unless God intervenes, you don't have a chance. Let me cover some fundamentals for us about this so we can try to be on the same page. Faith is so much more than just a mental acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God. So much more than a mental acknowledgement, yes, he rose from the dead. So much more than he's God, he's good, he's perfect. It's so much more. There's this massive piece of biblical faith that says that, that I trust him to be my God, which means I give him leadership in my life, which means my intent is whatever he says, I will do. Whatever he says, I will do. And Paul would write about this, a phrase Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul would say, we live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. When he said not by sight, he was meaning we don't rely upon our best reasoning and logic. He was saying we don't take what we can take in with our eyes and our mental capacity. We don't analyze it and come up with a direction. We don't live by that. Now, we don't suspend those things, if you read all the Scripture. We don't, we don't suspend logic and reason. But, but we live by faith because Jesus can override anything that we think is logical or reasonable because he knows everything. He's one with all knowledge and all power, and he's good. We live by faith, not by sight. The faith, biblical faith, if you have faith in Jesus, which is what it means then, then to know God and have heaven someday and everything, it means I've said, I, whatever you say, my intent is I'll just do what you say. And, and the expanse that Jesus wants to touch on and, and the times that it will not be what, what my sight would tell me to do. 
in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. I have this passage up in my office so I can look at it. Uh, I've had it up for a long, long time. It says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is saying that, that so often, so many times, you can put your best thoughts together, and mine will be so different than that. They'll be so far beyond that. You can look at the, what you think is the best path, the most desirable path, and so many times you will be wrong. See, my path is so often, it's, it's different than the path you would choose. It, the, so pervasively, so many times, so many times what God would say is different than what we would, would imagine doing. And, and it is so pervasive through every sector of our life. A man named Abraham uh, Kuyper said this. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's not a square inch of your life or mine of which Jesus doesn't say, I own that. That is mine. Every single sector of life. It means, like Peter, we would be a disciple of Jesus who is the rabbi with a capital R. He is God himself, God the Son. It means that he would have domain over all of our relationships and how we operate relationally with everyone in our world means he has domain over our character development, domain over our financial world and how we live financially, domain over our sexuality and how we express our sexuality, domain over our work, domain over our school, domain over our evangelism, over how we pray, when we pray, domain over our thoughts, emotions, every single thing in life, he has domain over that. And, and because his way is different, so many times... In all of those areas, so many times they'll say, now I want you to step into the deep where where feet may fail. I I want you to go where if I don't show up, if I don't supernaturally help you and intervene, you will fail. Maybe it will help to give you a couple of examples. I I was reading, in some days back, I was reading about a a single mom of five. I've got two examples. I'm hoping I can, with one or the other, catch most of you guys and identify with single mother of five, and this will help you to know this. She, she actually, these events actually occurred almost a hundred years ago. To put some perspective, I was reading about her life. She's a black woman. Her husband left her and their five children for another woman in the neighborhood. They lived in the deep south, and she decided to move her five children to Southern California. So she makes a move to Southern California. Very, very poor, as you can imagine. She's having to provide the means and food for all of them. She gets a house in a new neighborhood that she doesn't even know. It turns out that it is a predominantly white neighborhood. In fact, it's a full white neighborhood. And it turns out that people that are there do not want her and her five kids as neighbors. And so they begin to make efforts to cause her to move. And the efforts get very, very ugly. Very, very hate-filled. There's a day that the neighbors burn a cross in her front yard and... Um, and worse than that. But this mother of five is a follower of Jesus. And she takes following him very seriously, and she understands what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount about loving your enemy and about praying for those who persecute you and about turning the other cheek. And she believes that he wants her to actually live that out. And so uh, that is her step into the deep while the hatred is being spewed out upon her and upon her five children, she's making this effort day after day after day to give love back and to pray for and to bless day after day, week after week, month after month. 
And, and finally, uh, as time passes, the neighbors begin to step back on their hate-filled approach to remove her, and they finally uh, reach a point of neutrality, and over time, they actually begin to love and embrace her. She's taken this wild step into the deep where feet may fail, and, and how can she even, for one more day, in the midst of all the hate, how could she in one more day love them, gift them with kindness and grace and practical gifts? How can she do it day after day after day unless Jesus shows up supernaturally? And he did. But she's got a bigger vision than that from God. She's got uh, these five kids, and they've experienced all this hate poured out on them. But it's not just the neighborhood hate that finally goes away largely, but it's hate in their schools and in the community and on. And so her vision from God is that she, she wants them to come to know Jesus as well and to live the same way and to live in the face of hatred and evil and to give love back. And so she does all she can to teach them and model for them, but she realizes this is very important. She realizes that the odds are that's not enough. And so she ties to this local church and, and every single Sunday, she is there, and she's there with her five kids, because her perspective is they don't have much of a chance unless every influence of Jesus possible is poured into them. And so uh, some of you are single moms, and you get kids ready, and you've gotten ready them here today, and I passed some of you in the hallway, and I know it had to be hard, but it looked like all the scarves were on right, and all the boots were on the right foot, all that stuff had to be hard. Every single, five kids over and over and over because she thought they, they need other voices that have stepped into the deep also as well. Her youngest son was apparently a real firebrand and he struggled with this. He's a real strong personality and um, really a pretty talented guy. And, but that didn't make for a good combination sometimes. And there's a place, I think he was a teenager at this season of time, one example of, of uh, it being in question how he was going to turn out. But uh, someone in the neighborhood uh, just threw a racial slur at him. I, all the bad stuff didn't go away. Threw this racial slur at him. And so uh, he took a bunch of tar and he tarred the neighbor's front lawn. <laughs> just picture the mess that that is. And so this single mom then finds out about it. And so she drags her youngest son, who's now probably a teenager, drags him over there and has him apologize. And then she supervises while he, he completely restores the front yard. And picture the effort that that was. But she was trying to teach him, this is not the way Jesus would have you live. And by the time he, the youngest, leaves home, he's a follower of Jesus. And, and as God would have it, uh, help meet the desire of her heart and the heart of God, this firebrand actually starts going to another church. He's grown. He's left home, going to another church. And, and the central message of the pastor there that he becomes close to is, is the Sermon on the Mount. And it's all about turn the other cheek and when you're given hatred, give love back, and on and on and on. And, and, and this mother had, had spent a couple of decades of her life, and her calling from God was to step into the deep where feet may fail and to live in this countercultural way, and only by the power of God could she do it. The last one leaves home, and it, it, it looks like it really has caught, it really has mattered. Many of you can't relate to that, I understand so let me, there's another story, another person I've read about uh, in recent days as well. And uh, she was on the West Coast, this man's on the East Coast, and uh, she was very poor. This man actually was a very wealthy, very successful businessman. He was president of his company. By this point in time of his life story, he was in his 60s. He was a white man. And he was a follower of Jesus just as she was a follower of Jesus. And 
in this season of his life, uh, he's thinking about his company, and he, he's pondering and being disturbed by Jesus that a criteria to work in his company is you have to be white. This was in the mid-20th century. You had to be white. You couldn't work there unless you were white. And he knows that that's wrong. He knows that God's made everyone equal. Everyone should have equal opportunity. He knows that should change. But he also knows that, that the great majority of his employees like it this way. And if it were to change, they will hate it. And many of them may leave. And he understands that the great majority of his clientele like it this way. They, they want to buy from a company that's just, just, just white people working there. And if he makes a change, then he could lose many of his clientele. And to make it even worse, the entire, the entire industry that he's in, the entire industry he's in is white. The entire industry is white. But he's a follower of Jesus, and, and he senses the prompting of Christ to go there anyway. And so he steps into the deep where feet may fail, and he decides he's going to break the color barrier. And, and this is where it's um, very interesting. He knew he could find a lot of very talented people to hire that would be strong-willed and have great courage to fight back because they would be attacked. He knew that. He could find many people that could do that. But he was looking for the one very competent person who had enough courage not to fight back. This man was a follower of Jesus. He was looking for someone who had enough courage to, to love their neighbor and to turn the other cheek, which is why this man, whose name, by the way, was Branch Rickey, he was the president of the Brooklyn Dodgers in Major League Baseball. That's, that is how his path intersected the single mom of five, Mallie Robinson, on the West Coast. Because one of the most talented athletes in America was, was her youngest son, the firebrand, uh, Jackie Robinson. And as it turned out, as he was researching, looking for these great athletes, and then mostly looking for one who would follow Jesus and turn the other cheek, he found that the reputation of Jackie Robinson was to do just that. And so he sent out his, his scouts to supposedly looking at baseball talent for some new black league he was going to form. But he really was looking, he was sending scouts out to see how, how he would interact with, with people in the face of hatred and prejudice and discrimination and all that. So he had him tested out, finally had enough, enough uh, sense of assurance that, that this, man, this man lives and owns this life in Jesus. And so he invited Jackie Robinson to a first meeting and gave him the vision. And he said, Here's, in fact, I've got a picture. This is early on of the two men sitting down together. And he said, here's my vision is that I would bring you into Major League Baseball, first black player in Major League Baseball. And he said, you understand that you will be... Um, hated and you will be spit upon in every form possible and your life even will be at risk uh, but he said we can only do this together if you will buy into this principle of Jesus to turn the other cheek and to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you because it's the only, it's the only way that this has a chance to win uh, can't fight back hate with hate it's the only chance in fact there was a point where um, Ricky shared with Jackie Robinson a book titled Life of Christ by Giovanni Papini. And, and some of the core of that book is all about those principles, how to live that. And so, uh, so uh, they stepped off into this venture together. And Jackie Robinson, of course, was going to be put in the spotlight, uh, in, in the racial discrimination spotlight, as no one else in the past and present and future history of the U.S. has ever been. But not only was he risking something 
um, I have to say it just as well that um, Branch Ricky was as well. I mean, it, Ricky was risking his job, his position, his reputation, his wealth, his friends, his safety, his family's safety as well. And so they, they took the step. I got a picture of the team that first year. Scan it. Can you find Jackie Robinson? Man, that is a lot of white faces. And, and one brave follower of Jesus in the picture. And so the games begin, and I don't even know where to begin describing examples of the hate poured out. First, by, by even his teammates and his own Brooklyn fans, and then even worse when they were on the road as well, but this hate poured out. But, but day after day, Robinson would step into the deep where feet may fail and depend upon Jesus and say, one more day. Hey, let me love back one more day, day after day after day. And as that first season began to unfold deeper and deeper, some teammates began to see this giant of a man. And they began to admire him and embrace him and befriend him. And gradually the team began to change. And as the season unfolded, gradually some of the local fans began to change as well, bit by bit, slowly, bit by bit. Uh, away fans, not so much. The second season in, in fact, they were playing a game in Cincinnati against the Reds. And, and before the game began, they were, the Dodgers were on the field doing warm-ups. And uh, if you can picture the loudest crowd you've ever heard, all of them point out hate. And uh, the middle of that, one of the most popular Dodgers, and of course he was white because all the others were white, was named Pee Wee Reese. And Pee Wee Reese walked across the field, put his arm around Robinson, and stood there. Say, if, if you're against him, you're against me. In fact, this is a statue of, it's been created of that turning point event that uh, began to be a pivot point of how people began to respond to Jackie Robinson. Robinson would, would win the um, Rookie of the Year award his first year. Two years later, he would win the most valuable player in the entire league. Uh, he would, there would be a flood of black players that would follow him into the league now because of the barriers that he had broken there. After a very successful career, 1962, he was elected into this very, very select baseball hall of fame. Very, very few ever make it. And then teams through the years have done something else to the, the very best of their best players. If you look at all the teams, I believe all of them have done this. To the very best of the best through the decades, they will retire the number of that player. Babe Ruth, for example, his, his number three has been retired by the New York Yankees because they, the, the message is this man... This man stood so high above everyone else that no one else can ever fill those shoes again. So we retire the number. No one will ever wear number three. So, but something unprecedented happened in 1997, which was 50 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball. Major League Baseball determined that his number 42 would be retired, not just for the Dodgers, but for every Major League team, never to be worn again. Across the entire league, his number was retired. Never to be worn again, except every April 15th, which is the anniversary of the first game he ever played. Every, every April 15th, every single player in baseball wears number 42. If you're not a baseball fan, uh, here's my challenge. Write down on your calendar, April 15th, write down on that day. Uh, that evening, turn on a sports channel, and they'll be covering baseball. And look at the number on every single player you see. Why? And there was this man that followed Jesus 
who had this vision for his company, if you will. There was this single mom that followed Jesus, had this vision how she should live, and a vision for how kids might live. And her youngest son, who maybe struggled more than most to become that man, became that man. And I think back to them, Mally Robinson, single mother of five, walked on water. She stepped into the deep where her feet may fail. And when hate was poured out, she poured love back. And she took these five priceless children of hers. She poured all she had. And she invited the local church to pour all they had into five of them. That they might become followers of Jesus and become people who would pour out love when hate was poured out on them. She stepped into the deep where feet may fail. And Mally Robinson walked upon the deep. And I think about her son, Jackie Robinson. I think about the, the, the deep waters that Christ gave him to step into. Waters that certainly where his feet would fail if Jesus didn't intervene. Moment by moment, day by day, month after month, year after year. To pour back love day after day after day. And Jackie Robinson walked on water. And I think about Branch Rickey who had everything to lose. And he was retirement age. And cashed it in and go to South Padre. And he risked it all. Because Jesus said, I want you to step into the deep. And I want you to make things right. And as much as you can, I want you to make things right finally in this world. And where feet may fail, Jesus stepped into that and uh, carried him day by day for the courage to do that. And uh, the world has had some seismic shift because those people walked on water. You and I, you were never meant to be confined by human limitations. You were never meant to be confined by human limitations. God intended for you to walk on water. He intended for you to walk on water. Jesus is continually saying, step into the deep where your feet may fail, indeed they will fail, unless I intervene supernaturally and help you. And he does it across the entire sector of our being, entire sector of life. Every square inch is his. Relationships, character, finances, sexuality, work, evangelism, prayer, thoughts, everything. And on our power, on our power, when he invites us into the deep, we will drown. (laughs) But in his power, is supernatural power. We will walk on water. I have a question for you. Where is God calling you into the deep now? Where is God calling you into the deep now? Where your feet may fail. Indeed, where they will fail without Jesus intervening and causing you to walk on water. Where is he leading you into the deep now? And I would say this. That's where faith grows because that's where faith lives. That's where faith grows. And that's where the thrill and adventure of real life comes from. And that's where we meet him. And that's where we see his miracles in the deep. Where is he calling you to step into the deep now? And I would give you a passage. If you would write this down on your phone or in the notes you're taking, write down Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. It says this, because this is a verse for you to take today, through the week, and throughout this series. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Okay? Trust in him with all your heart. Don't depend on your understanding. Paul would say we live by faith, not by sight. Seek his will in all you do, every square inch what you do, and he will show you which path to take, and that path will be the path that will take you into the deep where your feet may fail. And that path is the path where God in his unlimited power will cause you to walk on water. There's a song that Mark has picked, and he and Sarah and the band are going to play after I pray, and it's a song a lot of you know and love, but I, I want you to listen to every single word and see if you believe those words, see if you can own those words. If it helps you to concentrate more by not singing, just take the words in. If it, if it helps you to sing, then sing from the core of your being. But the song is the essence of what I've just taught. It's the essence of Matthew 14 and Acts 1. It's the essence of all that. Father in heaven, may we hear the words of this song. May some of us sing the words of this song. And may the truth of what we've learned in Scripture just now, may it grip us, may it challenge us, may it stir us. If we're resistant, may it convict us. If we're open, may it pull us in, pull us forward. I pray we will see how... Um, challenging you will be to us. And indeed, indeed, we will be looking at the deep and you'll be saying, step in. And we'll recognize that our feet may fail. And we'll realize apart from you, they will. But we recognize because of who you are and who your son is, you will meet us there. And because you've led there, then, then you will supernaturally intervene. And we, like the single mom and her youngest son, and this man on the other coast, we will find what it's like to walk on water. Father, you are so good, so good. May we worship you in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.